Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures, which is brought to you by CME Group. Today, I'm joined by Carrie Lowe, Director of Head Strategies at Calsus, Ella Casanolo, Vice President at Workplace and Safety and Insurance Board, as well as Ryan Abrams, who is the Portfolio Manager at Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. First of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me today for this conversation, not just about managed futures, but also alternative investments in general. Before we jump into today's topics, share with me a short version of your background and how you got to where you are today. And Carrie, why don't we start with you? Tell us about your investment journey and how that led you to Calsus. Thanks, Niels. I'm happy to participate. Sure. I joined Calsters in 2009 when they had just formed the Innovation and Risk Unit. And prior to that, my experience has been quite broad in the finance industry on both the buy side in investment banking, corporate finance in New York, as well as on the buy side in equity research and convertible bond research at a mutual fund. My academic work has been in business as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, and I also earned a master's in finance from the London Business School. Fantastic. Thank you. All of those experiences have really culminated in my position at Calsters now, in the sense that I've worked at large organizations, small organizations on the buy side and sell side. And now being an allocator, we've essentially created a new group within a a large stable institution. And the purpose of the innovation and risk unit was to or is to test strategies that are new to Calsters and can diversify the total plan, primarily its heavy equity beta. And uh, in, in the innovation unit, I spearheaded our first investments into hedge funds, namely global macro and trend following. And those have since become part of a formal asset class called Risk Mitigating Strategies, or RMS. Exactly. That's great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. How about you, Ella? I know that you've also been on the consulting side, advising institutions about alternative investments, as well as on the manager side. So I'm really interested in finding out what led you to the investor side of of our industry. 
Oh, thank you, Niels. And thanks uh, for this uh, great podcast and uh, allowing me to participate. So I'm told that I actually have what people call the trifecta. So the <laughs> asset management, the consulting, and now the institutional or the allocated role. So right now I'm at Workplace Safety Insurance Board. I oversee our multi-asset strategies portfolio. We're roughly a $30 billion plan based in Toronto. It's an insurance, basic, mostly an insurance plan. And I oversee roughly 20-odd percent of that portfolio that includes hedge fund strategies. But I started out my career as actually a trader in Turkey. I grew up in Turkey and I was a currency and bond trader. I went on to the States. I worked at Merrill uh, Merrill Lynch and the credit derivatives as well as asset management group. I did my MBA at Georgetown around the same time. Then I moved to Europe. I worked for European Union on, on a number of uh, projects. And then I moved to Canada and I worked actually for a New York-based Quant Global Macro CTA. And that's where I got my first uh, interaction with the uh, macro and managed futures in the CTA world. So I was the head of Quant Research and Trading for that hedge fund for roughly six years. Then I moved on to work for, and I moved to New York uh, in the meanwhile. I moved back to Canada and I worked for Mercer, as you noted. Sure. I I was the senior manager research consultant covering hedge funds as well as multi-asset and other uh, side strategies and participating in asset allocation. My focus was really on the quantitative strategies, although I did cover discretionary as well. And after that, I had I spent a year at CIBC Asset Management. I was the institutional portfolio manager for currency and asset allocation team. So that was going back to asset management. And and I moved to Workplace Safety Insurance Board roughly a year ago. And since then, I'm overseeing the development of the portfolio as well as now I'm overseeing the investment team as well. Fantastic. Thanks ever so much, uh, Ella. And what about you, Ryan? Please share some of your background and, and how you ended up in the alternative investment space. Yeah, sure. So I actually started my career right out of school in alternatives, working as a manager uh, manager research analyst focused on CTA and macro strategies. So this is uh, manager research and multi-manager portfolio construction are sort of, you know, I guess where I've, they've been home for me. They're where I've, been sp they're where I've spent my entire career. So I did that, uh, I did that for uh, four or five years before joining Wharf in uh, 2011. And uh, I I'm responsible for a uh, $1.4 billion portable alpha program here. We also run uh, an internally managed uh, risk parity strategy, which is the foundation of our asset allocation. And as part of that, um, I'm also responsible for a sleeve of uh, of risk premium strategies that are that are intended to be a complement and a diversifier to the the long only asset betas that we that we hold in that portfolio. So that's uh, that's a bit on my background. Sure. And of course, you left out the best bit, Ryan, because you're also the co-author of one of my favorite educational white papers that the CME group offers. And I'm sure you know which one I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah. So, uh, so the Lintner Revisited paper I uh, worked at with my boss and uh, Liz Flores at the CME. So just uh, you know, highlighting some of the benefits of, uh, of managed futures and institutional portfolios and a uh, bit of an update and refresher on, on John Lintner's uh, early 80s paper describing the same. Sure. 
Absolutely. Now, our conversation today will focus on how the three of you use managed futures as part of your portfolio and the specific role that it plays. And I think it's safe to say that managed futures and in particular trend following strategies most often is used by institutional investors as protecting during or protection during periods of stress in the financial markets in order to mitigate risk for the overall portfolio. And of course, in your case, Carrie, as you mentioned, you have in fact set up a specific part of your portfolio for risk mitigation strategies of about 9% according to what I could find, which is of course, in your case, not a small amount of money given Calster's size. Could you start out by talking us through how you define the crisis that you wish to mitigate and what led you to make this decision? That's correct. Uh, Calsters manages about $206 billion now for close to a million teachers. And in 2015, we went through an asset allocation study where we modeled a new class called risk mitigating strategies and modeled how it would improve our funding ratio over a 20-year time horizon. And within risk mitigating strategies, we included four investment sleeves. They are trend following, global macro, systematic risk premia, and long duration treasuries. And the investment committee did decide to allocate 9% to this new class. We actually modeled quite conservative sharp ratios for these four new sleeves to include in the asset allocation study. And the sharp ratio was approximately 0.3. So even Mm -hmm. with that low sharp ratio, it did show that by reducing drawdowns of the total plan, particularly when equities go through a downturn and reducing the volatility of the overall plan over the long run, it would improve the funding ratio in 20 years, uh, despite this new Armist class not expecting to achieve our 7.5% actuarial assumption. Sure, sure, sure. And... We don't know what the next crisis will look like, which is why we wanted to include a number of tools in our toolkit. But we did look at previous crises as far back as we could with the tech bubble and the 08 financial crisis being the most significant ones and evaluating how each of these strategies performed during those periods, how they were correlated to the overall plan. Uh, to equities, to bonds, and what kind of return profile they provided, whether uh, it was primarily outperformance during downturns or and reducing their own tail risk within those strategies. Sure, sure, absolutely. Ryan, if my memory serves me right, you've done something similar with trend following and actually with a not too dissimilar size of your portfolio. Can you go into some of the details about what led you to to your decision? Sure. So 
So our starting our starting points may be a little bit different from Kelster's from the perspective that you know ideally our our portfolio is not so reliant on the performance of equities and we've you know we've balanced risk across multiple asset classes and you know multiple multiple economic scenarios or, or outcomes by um, you know by the by the allocations to levered bonds levered levered tips and commodity futures but you know for us um, you know a potential Achilles heel at least of a risk parity portfolio or approach is your your exclusively long assets and with expected returns being low or spreads on assets to cash being low you know we're maybe not as confident or, or comfortable that some of the assets in that portfolio that are intended to provide uh, protection or, or diversification in in bad environments bad outcomes uh, crises you know will we'll offer the same protection that they have historically uh, specifically treasuries and so you know hopefully we were able to generate positive performance crisis environment in our portable alpha portfolio but in in looking at hedge funds we recognize that there's this area between you know asset beta and and alpha where I think a lot of people refer to this as risk premia where you've got these strategies that um, that have risk that you can you can explain there's often economic intuition behind why these things uh, generate performance you know ideas like value momentum and then you know in most cases you've got you know very long uh, rich uh, performance histories or you know a lot of empirical evidence you know pointing to the notion that you know that these things generate attractive returns over time and and we kind of lump trend following into this bucket it's you know it's basically momentum uh long and short you know employed on a cross asset basis and um you know just looking at the looking at the properties of trend following it has the potential to generate performance during any kind of dislocation so i guess i'd kind of widen the definition from crisis to dislocation because it needn't be a bad environment for equities per se when these strategies can generate nice uh, nice strong performance that can generate you know that can generate really strong returns during an inflation surprise or a stagflationary surprise as well both of which would you know not only be really bad for equity heavy portfolios but portfolios generally, I mean, especially on the inflation side, it would be uh, you know it's a, it's a catastrophic environment usually for bonds, and so with with assets kind of universally expensive on a long only basis, you know, doing some doing some more stuff that that can benefit on the short side or from spreads between assets, you know, makes makes a lot of sense. And then you know having a having a healthy risk allocation to something like trend following that I guess build out the robustness of the portfolio to you know to to risks or environments where not a lot of things work or potentially offer protection. So, you know, in a, in a deflationary surprise, you've got bonds, and in an inflationary surprise, you've got uh, commodity futures. And I think we're much more comfortable, you know, relying on, you know, hopefully more than one asset or more than one investment to generate diversifying performance in those kind of environments. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this is a uh, this is a healthy size risk allocation uh, in the in the policy portfolio. So we've got a, about a fifteen percent risk allocation to uh, alternative risk premium strategies, and uh, trend following is uh, is about half of that. So so you know sure. you you see these uh, these studies run by consultants where you know you'll you'll do the optimizer and it will say that you know you should do something north of twenty percent in trend following. So we're not quite there, but um, you know I think eight percent of risk is, is a lot more than than many institutions than many institutions hold. So, you know, hopefully we're able to get the nice diversification benefits from that.
Just one quick question. When did you start your uh, yeah, portfolio? So we start, we, yeah, so I mean, we've been invested in trend following strategies for, uh, you know, for, for more than a decade through the Portable Alpha program, but we moved that over to become part of the policy allocation in March of this year. So, so it's only okay. been a few months. Great. Okay. And, and Ella, how, how are you using sort of managed futures and, and trend following in, in your portfolio? Sure. So, and, and maybe going back to your question as to how we define crisis and yeah, whether we sure. use managed futures in, in relationship to that, uh, it's it's similar to what Ryan described. Our journey started roughly 10 years ago. That really predates me. We had more uh, of a traditional structure portfolio with less alternatives. There was some, but not much. And the idea was really to reduce, not just get the returns, but also reduce the total fund risk. And so we started adding alternatives. And that's how we ended up with a number of different strategies that really did serve that purpose, one of them being the risk parity strategy. So similar to what Ryan described in our portfolio, we do have a sleeve dedicated to risk parity strategies which are geared towards addressing not crisis per se, but market distress, distress periods. And I think Ryan described it as dislocation. I would, I think that's referring to similar concepts there. And risk parity strategies, the way we've structured them are quite dynamic in the sense that they're supposed to address periods of uh, different periods of growth and not growth. And uh, that should be used to address part of that concern. And the other part is really on the hedge fund portfolio. So the risk parity is roughly 10% of our portfolio and hedge funds is also roughly 10%. And when the hedge fund portfolio was uh, was envisioned and created, it was really to address also similarly that. And, in, and I would agree with Ryan's view about the regular risk premia alpha and right in the middle, we'd think of it as alternative risk premium. So the hedge fund portfolio is really a combination of the alpha and the alternative risk premium. And that's how we put that portfolio together. And in there, we view hedge funds actually in general as a way of mitigating or creating, if you will, a positive skew or buffering the equity risk premium. And in there, uh, there is a portion that's allocated to macro strategies. And when we say macro, it really does cover discretionary macro as well as the host of systematic strategies, including managed futures and some of the alternative risk premia. So the idea there is really convexity and to get skew. And the strategies have been structured as because the size was relatively smaller. We started out as a fund of funds rather than direct managers, but over time, we've added more direct mandates into into the portfolio. And what we're looking for there is really in, in periods uh, that the equity risk premium is not driving the returns that we want to get a decent buffer and lowering risk from that portion of the portfolio. And we, we want to keep a healthy level of that going forward. Sure. Sure. Speaking of level, I mean, in one of my recent roundtables, which I encourage all of our listeners to go back and listen to, I was joined by three of the world's leading consultants. And one of them said that when it comes to trend following strategies, most investors are unable to allocate as much to this strategy as they really should, which Ryan also alluded to. I mean, do you agree with this? And, you know, as investors who have embraced it and, and the benefits of trend following 
Do you feel still deep down that you should really have a much bigger allocation, but politically that would just not be be possible to do? Carrie, if I can come to you first uh, on, on this one again. Sure. I think Ryan and Ella made great points in that this is an expected positive real return strategy over the long run, that it provides a different source of return because you can go long and short, multiple asset classes, multiple geographies, and it's a, a diversifier both in negative tails and potentially positive tails as well. And the capacity issue and allocation size issue, it is an important one that we grappled with in that trend following has a number of benefits, but there are times when it doesn't perform, when there are not uh, strong trends in the market. And those periods can actually be quite long and multiple years as we've seen. So it's a lot about setting expectations upfront on the the purpose of the strategy, how it's expected to behave and when. And, And then there are also sometimes capacity issues about the strategy itself. We hear about investors piling in or withdrawing from the strategy in in mass and issues about potential market movements and and how quantitative strategies may be influencing markets. There is always a, a trade-off and I think trend following there's a, a general definition of it, but there are a lot of details in how you invest or what areas you invest in in trend following, whether it's more short-term or more long-term. And certainly on the short-term side, there's less capacity and more transaction costs. From our standpoint, we began looking at trend following in 2011. And at that time, there were a number of investor pressures about fees and performance. And so managers were responding with developing more medium and long-term products that were lower fee. And that was the route we decided to go to invest in because both of those things were attractive to us. And and certainly on the, the fee front, we wanted to access the strategy at a lower cost. Sure. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And we may touch on that a little bit later as well. What about you, Ella? Do you you secretly walk around wishing you had three times as much in trend following that you currently have? (laughs) Um, Indeed. So I think Carrie touched on a very good point. The one of the items that is very important to explain to an institutional committee or board is that uh, while we would expect absolute, the returns are expected on an absolute basis, the underperformance could be for extended periods of time. And although a lot of the studies will tell you that you need to have, say, 15 to 20% in, in a portfolio, that is pragmatic or uh, or practical, really, especially in an institutional portfolio where you're aiming to get a decent level of diversification and with all the tools available, it's not exactly um, feasible to 
go for something of that size. Now, I, I will say, however, that it needs to be meaningful. And we've talked to our committee as we were putting the portfolio on that in the hedge fund portfolio, it needs to be a size that would have um, an impact. And so managed futures is part of it, but we do have other strategies that address a similar concern. So since we're not only constricted by trend following per se to address what we're looking to address. We have roughly three to four percent of the portfolio in in that specific type of strategies. We do also have alternative risk premium, as I mentioned earlier. I, I think the important point there is the convexity of these strategies. So how big will they get and what is the gamma profile? So as you know, most of these strategies are considered long straddle, but I think the importance is, are they really long gamma? And if they are, how much do they contribute to the performance as the markets go one way or the other? And as Carrie mentioned, I think that's a great point, um, really uh, either on the either tail. So in that sense, if, if uh, it's, it's really a portfolio construction question. So I think uh, we are positioned well. Having said that, the fees is, and I understand you'll go into that later on, but I think that is also another concern. Uh, as institutional investors, we're very fee sensitive. Of course, fees don't make or break the deal, but uh, on the managed future side, it has been systematically higher versus other hedge fund strategies, and it, that has not made our case simpler. Um, and therefore, this has not been something that would be easy to go back and say, hey, we want to grow, but that is not the only solution. There are longer term, medium term, relatively somewhat cheaper solutions out there. So we'd like to bundle the two and that's where how we get to where we want to get to. Sure. I mean, it makes, makes perfect sense. Now, Ryan, you, of course, did the analysis. You you co-authored the Bible study on, on this. So you, you know that 25% is the right number. So are you ever going to get there, do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that... Uh there is a right number per se. And I mean, so much, sure. it goes, it goes, it all goes back to the, it all goes back to the portfolio that, you know, any given investor is running. And I mean, I would, you know, while it's, you know, while it's tough to get boards to focus on what a single line item does to a portfolio, I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's really, that really should be the focus here, uh, you know, particularly because it, it, you know, it is a positive expected return, highly diversifying asset. And, you know, I think one that you can, you can notionally fund without putting up a lot of cash. If you were to invest in uh, trend following through a, through a managed account, this needn't be an opportunity cost question. You can, you know, you can take arguably more equity risk or, you know, more of some other kind of risk in the portfolio, uh, just because trend following will likely bring down the volatility, the overall volatility of your portfolio. And so all you're doing is moving on to a higher capital capital asset line and, and you know, increasing the efficiency of your portfolio. So, you know, I, I don't, I think that the, you know, the, the focus should be for boards and, and for investors serving boards on, on the portfolio effect and, and what this can do for your portfolio rather than a, an opportunity cost question, especially, I mean, you know, getting the flexibility to use leverage is uh, not an easy conversation with, uh, with boards necessarily either. But to the extent that you can relax that constraint, you know, I think there, you know, you get to the point where there's some really, some really interesting and powerful things that you can do. Sure, absolutely. And speaking about getting these type of strategies approved by, by the board in the first place, Carrie, 
was there anything unique to this mandate in comparison with other investment mandates? I mean, how difficult has it been for your institution to to embrace these strategies in, in the first place? It's definitely been a long process. We <laughs> began with macro and decided to start in a very focused way with a small allocation, with a very specific objective. And this was in 2009 that we presented macro, so right after the financial crisis and articles okay. every day about the evils of hedge funds. Uh, but in the end, we we did the analysis, we presented the evidence, we showed that certain hedge fund strategies did have low correlation to equities or did have asymmetric return profiles or actually took advantage of volatility and provided diversification to what we already had in the plan. And in the end, we did receive unanimous approval to go forward. As Ryan mentioned, managed accounts can solve a number of issues, one of them being the cost, but we decided to invest directly with funds in a managed account format to address the issues of transparency, control, risk-taking, and sure. gating, things like that. And so that's been a very important tenant of our program over time, but it, it is an ongoing educational process. Uh, there's continues to be a lot of scrutiny of hedge funds and again the fees come up and we continue to just provide the, the quantitative evidence as well as the intuitive qualitative rationale for the program. Ella, I would love to hear your experience as well. I know you may not have been there when it began on your on your side, but in, in terms of also dealing with investment boards and advisory boards in general about this uh, particular strategy area. This is interesting because I also, as, as you mentioned, I did deal with this mm -hmm. when I was at Mercer and being on the consulting side of the business, it was interesting because people have different problems and every portfolio is slightly different. So the major driving factor was, or the, the way we approached it was especially equity centric portfolios where the uh, main performance uh, driver was or, or the portfolio was traditional 60-40 or equity risk premium was the main driver, we explained that, that there needs to be various drivers of returns to diversify away from one driver of return or, or two. And we showed the addition and how the value add of, of such strategies could really make a difference. And especially for cleaner portfolios, you could simply go into a 60-40 portfolio and add managed futures or a portfolio of managed futures, I should say. And you could make a big difference. So it becomes very visible in that sense. In, in, in our case, so as I said, it predates me, but this was really a portfolio construction exercise. And it was not just obviously hedge funds. There were a number of other things that were added. And since then, the, the our committee and board, uh, they've been very comfortable with progress. They understand the role uh, the portfolio plays and the components, the pieces do play in the portfolio. And the expectation that the next uh, time frame or, or the 
distress periods that we've seen over the last four or five years. Two thousand, late two thousand fourteen, one was a was a good example, same as early last year or August of two thousand fifteen. And we've seen a number of these, and it, it's been quite. It was quite good to emphasize and validate yeah. the reasoning behind the portfolio. What we're looking to do is, is education is endless, <laughs> <laughs> so we want to we want to move on to the next stage. And Ryan had made a good point that uh, these can be really powerful tools if you can move from uh, a simple allocation. We do also have overlay structure, although this is not specifically for hedge funds. That's the way we would envision using these strategies because you can get quite an impressive cash efficiency by just partial funding and a more customizing of volatility that could be an add-on and it could be a quite a bigger impact on the portfolio. And that's, that's where we would like to go and move on. And we've been talking to our committee and broadening the toolkit, if you will. Sure, sure. Great. And you're absolutely right. Education is, is never ending. And of course, they should all read Ryan's uh, study and, and listen to this podcast uh, in, in, as part of that. Yes. Ryan, what about you? I mean, you uh, you said you, you co-authored the, the study with your boss. So I don't know whether that's your current boss, but did that help get uh, the investment board on, on site, so to speak? So un- unfortunately, different boss, but fortunately a <laughs> boss who, you know, already understood trend following and, and had been investing in it. But I mean, it just, it, it it goes back to education, education, education. You you have to uh, explain to the board what you're trying to do and why, and then you know review that and refresh their memory from time to time. I'm you know I don't know the composition of, of other boards, but these are oftentimes you know very busy, very important people, and you know you're only getting you know a few hours with them every. Uh, in our case, every quarter, and so um, you know they've they've got a lot of other responsibilities that they're managing, including uh, being on a particular board that, that you're serving, and so reviews, uh, reminders from time to time are of, of what you're trying to do and and why are always helpful from my perspective. Sure, no, absolutely, and I mean, so once you have the approval of the investment boards and. And you've had to start finding managers that could give you the desired performance uh, profile. What were you looking for and how did you go about finding this, Ryan? If I can stay with you in that, I know you might have gone in a different direction than Ella and, and Carrie, but but how did that? Uh, no, so I think uh, I, th- I think the direction is probably pretty similar. So like Ella, we you know were focused on you know trying to get that convex uh, return profile, and I think you know one of the best places to find that is in you know the medium to, to long term trend following duration and so you know that's that's kind of been our area of focus and you know we've talked about fees as well but i you know i think the reason why fees for that segment of the trend following space tend to be lower is correlations go uh, among managers or among strategies go up as you extend trend duration performance just looks looks increasingly similar and then you know that's also that also tends to be the area where you know you kind of get the desired performance profile and so that's you know that's that's been the that's been the focus for uh for us as well sure what about you Ella? is that how you went about it as well so it, it's been the the portfolio is we've been looking to add a little bit more and the portfolio structure has been not exactly in line with what I'd like to see in the long run, but uh, the focus 
recently has been trying to extend maybe a little bit into tail risk strategies and to complement the uh, managed futures that we have in the portfolio. So it's been a journey on our end and I've been actually looking to expand our horizons in the sense that there's a lot of different things that we want to add into the way we deal with different timeframes. So, and, and as Ryan mentioned, the fees have been a little bit difficult to deal with and that has sort of created and and I guess I should say uh, encouraged us to look outside of what we are currently utilizing. So, uh, but initially when constructing the entire subset of managed future and, and macro strategies, we did look at the whole host of, I'd like to call them the beta strategies, if you will, although they're not really the typical beta strategies, beta as well as the alpha strategies into the mix. And uh, that's how we took it forward. Sure, sure. Now, in your case, Carrie, the, the adoption of this mandate has made you one of the largest investors in, in managed futures in, in the world. I mean, did this make it easier or, or harder for you in order to find the right managers? The manager selection process never seems easy, but <laughs> we did want to start with a very broad universe. And so there are nearly 800 trend following managers. And because of the size of our allocation, we did place more emphasis on the larger managers and uh, those that were institutional quality and that we wouldn't have too large of a, a holding ratio or percent of their assets with our investment. Uh, we did meet with nearly 50 trend-following managers. We ultimately selected six. So we did try to take a very broad view. Ultimately, when we decided on how we would construct the portfolio, we evaluated each manager on a standalone basis, but as others have alluded to, how they interact and or how they diversify each other was very important. So along the lines of time horizon, we did want to include some short-term managers, so maybe down to a week or less, nothing high frequency, up to the longer-term managers or having some that have some adaptive process across those timeframes. We also wanted diversification along the lines of the markets that they trade and the instruments that they trade. So some will trade less than 100, others will trade north of 300. And we also wanted exposure to various geographies. And although the correlation of the managers can be very high, we found that sometimes there is enormous dispersion among the returns because of how they construct their portfolio, how they manage the risk. And so we also wanted to diversify along those types of approaches. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the dispersion of, of, of returns. I actually think that dispersion between trend followers, their returns are increasing in, in many respects. I think in recent years, it's not been that easy to really uh, forecast how that space is reacting to certain periods. I'm sure you know more about maybe the reasons why that might be, but but it's not quite as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago regarding what, you know, if you knew the performance of one manager in the trend space, you kind of knew the whole area. But I see differences as well, which makes, I guess, your heart or your job a little bit harder, uh, all of you. Ryan, I also wanted to ask you a little bit because I think that from memory that 
You've also gone more maybe in the route of of the the beta replications or the the replication strategies for for trend following. Am I am I right? On yeah, that? that that's correct. So I think that there's. I guess there's a lot of differentiation among among trend following strategies. I mean, just kind of using that as a starting point. But you know, even even something as simple as a you know very simple trading rule: buy when price is above you know a moving average and sell when it's below it. You know, somewhat incredibly generates uh, positive performance uh, over time. And so there's all sorts of bells and whistles and risk controls that one can can add around. You know, a set of very simple trading rules. So I think we're somewhere in the middle on the continuum. I mean, I think you know just because this is a widely known, uh, well understood strategy, where there there can be high correlation, you know, among among strategies as well, suggesting that managers are doing something similar doesn't mean that there is not a lot of room to add value through implementation. So I think that, you know, I think that that's something you know certainly to be aware of and, and cognizant of on the manager selection side. And then, you know, pointing to the dispersion of you know returns among managers. I mean, it's it's really difficult to to disaggregate. Uh, skill from luck in that area. So in a given year, did manager A outperform manager B because they're better or because of some, you know, some kind of accident because, uh, you know, their asset allocation was slightly different and that helped them or their models were a little longer or shorter and that helped them. And so, you know, from my perspective, you know, these are all D- difficult factors to, you know, to try to understand and, and weigh. And I think you just try to do the best you can. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.